Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have David Baran. He's a researcher and lecturer at Geneva University. He's part of the hospitals and University of Geneva, member of the Faculty Diabetes Center, Faculty of Medicine, and again, all this at the University of Geneva. We're going to talk about type 1 diabetes and his research uh, surrounding it. So, David, thanks for coming. Thanks for the opportunity, Richard. Yeah, tell me about uh, why do you focus on type 1? What's your research about? So my research focuses on type 1 diabetes and really is divided into to three areas. So firstly, I look uh, at the issue of access to insulin. So insulin is vital for the survival of people with type 1 diabetes. And so a lot of my research is focused both at a global level and at a national level on what are the barriers to access to insulin. The second area I focus on is on health systems. So how do health systems deliver diabetes care, specifically type 1 diabetes care, and what are the, again, some of the barriers, but also some of the lessons we can learn from different health systems on the best way to deliver uh, diabetes care uh, throughout the world. And then the final component is really thinking about the individual and focusing on the individual. Uh, type 1 diabetes is a condition that's managed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so a lot of that management is done outside the, the formal health system, away from a clinic, away from a hospital, away from a doctor's office. And so how do we need to think about the needs that individuals with diabetes have uh, beyond the, the barriers of, of the health system? So for someone that doesn't have type 1, what is daily life and care like for someone with type 1 diabetes? So people with type 1 diabetes, uh, their pancreas doesn't, fo- doesn't produce any insulin. So insulin is uh, the hormone that uh, people produce naturally that regulates blood sugar levels. So after eating a meal, Uh, insulin is produced that either helps us store that food for later use if we're going to work during the day or do be physically active or helps us use it right away for talking, for moving, for breathing, et cetera. And so people with type 1 diabetes don't produce any insulin and therefore they need to inject uh, insulin into their bodies. And that really means that their their daily routines that we take for granted, uh, whether it's eating, being physically active, or anything else uh, requires them to find a right balance and walk a tightrope between what they what what they eat, um, how physically active they are, and how much insulin they use. And then uh, it also uh, requires monitoring using uh, different tools that monitor blood glucose um, to help people manage their diabetes as best that they can. So, how do people find out first that they have type one, and how old are they when they find out? Usually. So people can develop type 1 diabetes at any age. Um, usually it presents in childhood or, or adolescence, but it can ha- happen at uh, any age. Usually people present with sort of three ca- classical symptoms. They're very thirsty, they urinate a lot, and they can lose a lot of weight. Um, and it can, uh, can lead people to, to feeling very sick and presenting in, in, in coma. Uh, so the onset can be quite rapid or it can be quite slow. 
uh, it depends on, on a whole variety of factors. But traditionally, uh, people have these three classical symptoms. So very thirsty, uh, losing weight, and also um, urinating a lot, and, and also can be uh, very hungry. So it, and people who describe the, the thirst say it's sort of an unquenchable thirst. And, um, and in, in the past, uh, it was called sort of melting disease because people felt that they were melting away by losing weight and, and, and urinating it out. Um, and also it's been called sugar disease because people, when they urinate, and the reason they urinate is that they're getting rid of the excess sugar in their blood. And so in the past, people um, called it sugar disease mainly because the, the urine was sweet, um, as well as insects going to, to the places that people had urinated because the, the, the urine was high in sugar content. Yeah, that's weird. So why these? Why do these phenomena occur? Why the intense thirst? Why the urine and the sugar? Just, just curious. I don't know if it's talked about very much. So why the exhaustion? So, so, so what's what's happened? These people with type one diabetes, as they develop type one diabetes, they can no longer use the sugar that's in their blood. So it accumulates in their blood, um, and the body's mechanism for for getting rid of it is uh, through the kidneys and therefore urine. The reason that people are hungry is that the the energy they need isn't isn't getting to where it is because it isn't being stored or it's not entering their muscles. So they're they're feeling hungry, and the fatigue is is that you're you're running out of of gas, so to speak. The the, the sugar is in your blood, but it's not getting to where it should be, uh, either being stored uh, in the liver for future use or being used right away in in your muscles. Okay, and the the exhaustion, the thirst. What uh, what do you think that comes from? So the, the exhaustion is just that you're, the energy you're supposed to be getting from your food isn't getting into to the engine, so to speak, because your, your pancreas isn't allowing the sugar to enter your muscles or to be stored. And the thirst is that you're, you're just, in a sense, maybe not the best analogy, but think about eating a lot of something that's very sweet or, or sugary, you, you do get thirsty quite a, quite a bit. And, and that's also possibly linked, and I'm not an expert here, but that uh, because of the sugar accumulation in your in your blood, your your blood is becoming very syrupy, and and therefore is there some mechanism there? Yeah, that's weird. Is it just getting insulin, or what? What what does care mean? You know, for a type one diabetic, what do they need to get? Like a, a consistent stream of advice, or is it just the insulin itself, or needles, or you know so what um, runs in short supply? So it, it, insulin is needed for survival for type one diabetes. So someone with with type one diabetes who doesn't get insulin uh, will die within a matter of a few days, few weeks, or or if they're lucky, a few months. So so insulin is survival. Um, insulin is a, a liquid. It's a biological product. It's not a tablet. So it needs to be injected. So therefore, you know, the insulin is is vital. But then so is either a, a, a syringe or a pen device to deliver that insulin. And that you could say is is the basic for survival. So someone with needs insulin um, to, to survive. But but beyond that, there's there's type one diabetes, as I mentioned previously, is is a balancing game. It's a balance between insulin, it's a balance between food intake, it's a balance between how physically active you are. And therefore, uh, education, advice, access to a trained healthcare worker is also essential so that the individual who has type one diabetes can learn how to manage this relatively complex condition. Um, you, on top of that, you can add a tool to monitor blood glucose. So people will monitor their blood glucose throughout the day to see if their blood sugar is high. And if it's high, do they 
do they inject more insulin? If they're, if they're low, do they take a sugary drink or eat something sweet? Um, and, and, and those tools are, are essential as well um, for, for proper management. And then beyond, beyond those, those basics, there are other education uh, approaches that, that can help people who are very physically active. Uh, there are now pump devices to deliver insulin. There are continuous blood glucose meters. But of course, these new technologies come at a cost and these more advanced, uh, this more advanced information and education is only available in some health systems uh, or in some locations in some countries. So it's not necessarily available to everybody. What's some of the, uh, the equipment that's really vital for a type one person? Like is it CGM or an insulin pump vital or can people you know, get along without one? People, you know, in your estimation. Yeah, people can get by without one. Um, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, people can get by with a, a vial and a syringe and a blood glucose meter. Um, some people would argue that that's basic technology, um, but that basic technology can keep someone alive. Of course, for many people in low and middle income countries or even low and middle income individuals in some high income countries, uh, those, those basic tools can still be uh, out of reach financially if the health system doesn't, doesn't provide those. Um, so yes, some people would view those as basic tools, but those basic tools can keep people alive. Of course, newer technologies, continuous uh, glucose meters or monitors, sorry, um, insulin pumps, even insulin pens can be seen as, as better, but these, these newer tools come at an extremely high cost for the individual or for the health system. How much do pumps or, um, you know, I've, I've worn a CGM myself, so, I mean, the cheaper one, I guess, is a Lifestyle Libre, but it's still you know, 400 to start, maybe 500 and then uh, about 200 a month. And the uh, Dexcom is like 1000 to start, and uh, I believe at least 200 a month or maybe more. So they are very expensive. I don't know about the pumps, but uh, you know, of these items, which one's affordable? I mean, I think, I don't know exactly the cost of pumps and pumps will, will depend on, on countries and, and what, what the health system provides, what insurance people have. But I think when we think about affordability, um, you know, what's affordable for an NBA player uh, or a, a pro fo- footballer in the U.S. is very different than, for example, myself as, a, as an academic. So the, the issue of affordability, of course, is, is always linked to, to income. Um, you know, what's, what's affordable for me is not the same as, as for them as, you know, highly paid athletes. Um, and what we're looking at is, is something that is quite expensive to manage. You know, there is the insulin, there's the delivery device, there's the monitoring, there's consultation fees, there's additional lab tests, transportation in some countries or some locations can be a huge cost, um, missed time at work. If, uh, if a parent or the individual with diabetes is paid an hourly wage and, and needs to go to their clinic and therefore misses work, that can be an additional cost. So, so overall, uh, type 1 diabetes can be an ex- extremely expensive uh, condition to, to manage for the individual um, if, if they need to pay uh, out of pocket. So, again, what are you focused on? The, uh, just the basics, you know, at least getting insulin to people, even in uh, really disadvantaged circumstances or uh, increasing usage of CGMs and pumps or, you know, where are you finding that the, is the greatest need? So, no, most of my research uh, focuses on low and middle income countries. And unfortunately, there, despite insulin having been discovered in 1921 
and first used in 1922, many people in low and middle income countries don't have access to insulin. So most of my work focuses on, on ensuring that people uh, get the basics for survival and understanding the reasons why they're not getting those, those elements that are necessary for survival, both from a global perspective, by looking at the insulin market, by better understanding the insulin market from a global perspective, but then also understanding the health system um, and how diabetes care is delivered within a, a given country. Well, so what are some examples in uh, poorer countries, you know, how people are treated or not treated, you know, what's, where are some of the issues occurring and what are they? Sure. So I think let's, let's take one example that could be a, a, a seen as a good example. So Nicaragua in Central America, uh, it's the second poorest uh, country uh, in, in the America region after Haiti. Um, but that country has decided to provide insulin and, and some syringes, not enough, for free to, to people with diabetes. There, the challenge, so it isn't access to free insulin. It's, it's more access to care. It's access to, to care if you live outside the capital city. So most of the care is provided at the national hospital um, in, in the capital city. Um, and, and that raises a lot of issues in terms of travel, um, in terms of access to care, um, the, the monitoring equipment uh, isn't provided. They do receive some donations, but usually those aren't sufficient for the full need. So there, what you have is, is the basics for survival. So the insulin is guaranteed, but then there's the, everything else around that needs to be further developed in terms of access to uh, the, the strips, access to healthcare workers, access to information and education and, and everything else. Um, to the other extreme, in some countries in sub-Saharan Africa, everything is paid for out of pocket. So the, the government doesn't help their, their citizens and people have to pay for insulin. Um, and that can be uh, anywhere from, let's say, 5 to $10 a vial, which is about $120 a year for an individual at a, at a minimum. Then on top of that, you have syringes. Um, you have consultation costs, you have lab tests and all that. And, uh, and all of that has to be paid for by the individual out of their pocket. And these are countries where many individuals live on less than a dollar a day. So therefore, coming back to your previous question about affordability, um, you know, even insulin, which is needed for survival, is, is, is not affordable for some people living in these countries. So I don't know, what are some of the solutions? Do people, uh, you know, do they hoard insulin? Do they... Uh, what? What do you do? Is there like who, who makes insulin and, uh, you know, how tightly is it, is it distributed? Are there multiple you know, companies making it or is it kind of a monopoly? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I'll answer the, the first part of your question. So what what do people do? I think there's unfortunately there's many people who, who unfortunately die because they can't afford it. There are some pro programs that have been developed. So there's the Life for a Child program that's run uh, out of Australia that provides insulin and other supplies to, to many uh, children and young adults uh, throughout the world. Um, then there's one of the insulin companies has another similar program that provides donations. So there, and then there are the other smaller initiatives globally through donations or, or support schemes, but uh, you know, many people face a, a constant challenge uh, in terms of access. So they may access insulin for a little bit, and then because of the cost, either have a lower use a lower dose than they should and get very sick and sometimes even die, or sometimes the, the financial burden is such that um, 
that they just can't pay, can't pay for it. In terms of the insulin market, um, as I mentioned, insulin was discovered in, in 1921 by uh, researchers at the University of Toronto in, in Canada. Uh, originally, insulin was produced by purifying uh, the, the pancreas from, from uh, pigs and, and beef. Uh, now it's, it's made uh, through, through um, genetic engineering. Um, and, but the market is dominated by three large multinationals uh, that control uh, over 90% of the global market. Um, there are smaller producers, but those producers are, are in a sense, sell in, in a smaller group, smaller number of countries than the, uh, the big three multinationals. So, I don't know, are there any uh, major ways you see to, to, to turn this around? I mean, which, which countries are in the unfortunate situation where they have like a, a growing type one population and they have a lot of them and they're very poor? Um, type, type one diabetes is increasing globally, uh, not as rapidly as type two diabetes. Um, I think, you know, one country that is of course of concern is, is the U S for the uninsured population or the, the, the socially disadvantaged population. Um, the same is true to a lesser extent in, in other high income countries, because in Europe, we're somewhat lucky. We have a, a social security net or, or, or universal coverage that's provided by the government or other schemes that protect individuals, but that's not to say that certain vulnerable groups don't face challenges affording their care. I, I think it's it's a global challenge in terms of, of the affordability of this, of all the tools that are needed for, for managing type 1 diabetes. And in terms of what can be done, I think we've seen for other conditions uh, such as HIV AIDS, you know, a, a mix of, of stakeholders come together, which we haven't yet seen really for diabetes. So for HIV AIDS, you had people with HIV AIDS that, that spoke up uh, not only for their needs, but also for the needs of, of their peers who were less fortunate. You had governments take a, a, a leading role, both governments on a national level. So the Swiss or US government taking a lead um, or, or some African governments taking a lead on, on their needs, but also high income countries taking a, a role to, to provide funding and resources for, for low and middle income countries. And then on top of that, I would say you had the private sector that played a, a, a role. Um, some would argue they were forced into playing this role, but they played a role in coming to the table and lowering, lowering medicine prices, um, coming to address this uh, challenge as a stakeholder around the table, um, which we haven't seen for diabetes. Um, there's a lack to a certain extent of a global civil society movement on diabetes. Uh, governments, uh, especially now, unfortunately, with the coronavirus situation, are really focusing on, on that problem. Cor they're correctly focusing on that problem, but they shouldn't forget you know, that, that diabetes remains and people with diabetes are especially vulnerable to coronavirus. And then finally, the private sector still hasn't come to the table in a, in a constructive way. There have been some initiatives, um, but these are relatively small in scale. And, and more is needed in terms of these different partners coming together and, and developing something that's sustainable to really be a, a game changer. What's the expected impact of, uh, of COVID on people that have diabetes? Like how much more of a mortality is there or likelihood of it? Any estimation? I'm sure there is. I don't have any figures. Uh, I know that people with diabetes are, are more at risk of COVID-related mortality. And especially people who are obese as well. But I don't know of any specific statistics in terms of, of 
you know, how much more likely people with diabetes or people with obesity are, are, are likely to, to die. Um, it, the main message I would say is that people with diabetes, be it type one or type two, are, are, are vulnerable to coronavirus. And again, the, the, the response from the health system, both for diabetes care as well as coronavirus um, related responses are essential to ensure that uh, people with diabetes are still accessing their care, even if during lockdowns or, or, or the health system being overwhelmed with coronavirus um, and, and also ensuring continued access to medicines and care uh, to guarantee that, that other complications are, are prevented, not just COVID related, but other complications related to, to diabetes. Yeah, I'm sure because of the lockdowns, I don't know how many people have, uh, have had problems with type one and other things, but has anyone even looked at that? Um, so some of our colleagues in Peru have, have started looking at that. So looking at the impact of, of lockdown on, on people with type one diabetes, there's anecdotal uh, information about people not being able to access their insulin because, you know, the, because of the lockdown um, or, you know, hospitals shutting down and just focusing on coronavirus, uh, people missing appointments or not being able to get to their appointments. But on the other, uh, on the other side there, you know, there are stories of people mobilizing um, both nationally and, and internationally to, to respond to these needs, but the, the needs are huge. Uh, even without coronavirus, and, and coronavirus has just brought these even e these problems and challenges even more to the to the surface. Gotcha. Well, so what what are some initiatives that you're looking at or working on or helping to foster for the next coming years to increase access to uh, insulin and other things needed for type one? Um, so so with some colleagues at Health Action International, which is an NGO based in the Netherlands, we uh, have a, a study called the addressing, addressing the Challenge and Constraints of Insulin Sources and Supply. Um, we are now in finishing up our, our sixth year of this project. Um, and what we've done in the first three years is really to understand the global market. Um, so my colleagues and I had done a lot of work in different countries and we had a good understanding of the different challenges in different countries, but every country had a, had a different challenge in terms of, of access to diabetes care and insulin. And so what we've done is really map out the global market uh, through different angles. We've looked at prices, we've looked at the producers, we've visited companies, um, we've collected a lot of data on a variety of, of issues around uh, the regulation of insulin, as well as the markups within the system. And then after those, those first three years, we've developed a whole series of, of tools in a toolbox that hopefully can help countries address the, the different challenges that we've identified. Um, and we've also started working in, in four partner countries, so Tanzania and Mali in Sub-Saharan Africa, Peru in Latin America, and Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia, to gain, again, an understanding of the national challenges and link the, 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 the global issues with uh, national solutions. And within the project, we're also trying to work with the World Health Organization and other UN organizations, as well as the private sector to find sustainable solutions. I think one thing that we learned through this project is that given the, 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 the insulin market and its structure, that any solution um, has to, to involve the private sector and involve the private se sector constructively in a way that the private sector can still make money. That's the role of the private sector but find a sustainable business model that can improve access to insulin, but also uh, ensure that there is some return on investment for the, for the company. 
in parallel to working on, on other factors in terms of raising awareness in our four partner countries and other countries on this issue of, of type one diabetes. So with uh, a variety of organizations, uh, including Doctors Without Borders, um, we're working on a World Health Assembly resolution for the centenary of, of insulin. And there the idea is to raise awareness um, globally, but especially for, for governments and the World Health Organization on this issue. And then finally, for, for civil society, it's, it's as, as an academic, um, is, is to continue doing research and providing information so that advocates and, and NGOs and, and my colleagues um, in NGOs have the material they need to, to push this issue forward, both globally as well as nationally. And what are the numbers estimated to be uh, you know, worldwide? How many people have type 1? What's the increase rate or what's the rate of uh, new, Kate, new, new people with it? So, so globally, there are about 1.1 million uh, people age zero to 19 with type one diabetes. So that's missing everybody that's above the age of 19. Um, unfortunately, there are no current global estimates on that with colleagues from the World Health Organization, as well as some other academics who are working on uh, filling that, that void. And so hopefully we'll soon be able to, to, to provide that information in terms of what is the overall burden. Um, there are some studies that show that there's an increase of about 3% annually in, the, in, in type 1 diabetes. Um, it varies from country to country. It uh, varies also between age groups. So there's no, there's no sort of overall number that, that uh, can, can be highlighted. Some, of, some studies show a, a more rapid increase in, in countries where there are less cases. Now, is that, is that a true increase? Or is that just better case detection? So more people with type one diabetes are actually being diagnosed, whereas before they, they were being misdiagnosed and dying. They were dying because of diabetes, but weren't being sort of tallied as, as people with diabetes. And so it's, it's, it's hard to say in terms of, of type one diabetes, what are we seeing globally from an epidemiological perspective? And especially so in, in low and middle income countries where there's really a, a gap in, in our knowledge uh, on this issue because of, of a lack of, of investment. And just as a, as a comparison, there's about 422 million people with type 2 diabetes. Um, so it's type 1 diabetes from a, a, the diabetes perspective is, is a much smaller problem uh, in terms of the overall diabetes burden. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and follow up? People can email me directly. Uh, so my email address is david.baran, B-E-R-A-N, at U-N-I-G-E dot C-H. And I'm happy to answer any questions or send any documentation. Or you can uh, Google Health Action International. Um, and on the website, you'll find more information on the AXIS study. So the Addressing the Challenges and Constraints of Insulin Sources and Supply Study. And there you'll find the different reports that uh, highlight the challenges related to access to insulin, um, as well as publications and, and different reports. Well, very good. David, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.